Hey, it's Andrew. The 2023-24 season of Portland Arts and Lectures has just been announced. Speakers include Sadie Smith, Mary Beard, David Gran, Charles Yu, and Amy Nezukumotato. To learn more about the season and how to join us at the Arlene Schitzer Concert Hall for five inspiring evenings, visit literary-arts.org. Welcome to The Archive Project. I'm your host this week from Literary Arts, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we hear from beloved, best-selling novelist, essayist, and bookstore owner, Anne Patchett. The talk in this episode is from her appearance at Portland Arts and Lectures in 2013. She joined us on the publication of a collection of essays titled, This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. Patchett returns to Portland on Thursday, September 7th, 2023. She's in conversation with Cheryl Strayed about her new novel, Tom Lake. More info at literary-arts.org. I cannot wait to hear from her again a decade later because this 2013 talk made me think about what do we want from an artist talk, particularly from a writer who already gives us so much in words. I think a lot of people when we read are looking for reassurance and recognition. There's moments as a reader when you come across a description of a feeling you never realized you had and you're like, yes, this, you got it perfectly, thank you. I actually never knew how to say that I felt that way. And equally amazing is when a writer describes things and people and places that we'll never see or feel or experience in a way that makes that story so real to us. This makes writers extraordinary, sure, but we also realize that they're people too. Writers, they're just like us. And maybe that means that we can also be extraordinary. And this is what is so powerful about Ann Patchett's talk. While her devotion to craft and exceptional talent is clear from her many award-winning novels, we learn that her writing life is also one filled with false starts, detours, happy accidents, and acts of generosity. It is also consumed, at least in the first part of her career, with the practical need to make a living and the compromises and survival techniques required to do so. And so, in her talk, she tells the story of her life as a writer with a wry sense of humor, sharp insight, and a refreshingly practical attitude. Here's Patchett. I have a terrible cold, and I am so heavily medicated right now that I am clicking with pills. Give, give me your gracious sympathy, and I will tell you stories about how I got here tonight. Um, what I've been thinking about a lot is altruism, and the fact that uh, you, know, you do good deeds for the sake of the good deed, or do you do good deeds in hope of getting something back from it. The author Madison Smart Bell emailed me a couple of months ago. I'm from Nashville, Madison is from Nashville. And he was asking me about this. He'd been reading Christopher Hitchens and it was something that he was trying to kind of work out for a book he's working on. And he said, do you believe in altruism? Do you believe that there is such a thing as a good deed for the sake of a good deed? Or like Hitchens says, do you think that Mother Teresa just really enjoyed working with lepers and it was the thing that made her feel good about herself and so she gets no points for it? <laughs> because, you know, whatever makes you happy makes you happy. And if working with lepers makes you happy, that's the same thing is if robbing banks makes you happy. Uh, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't get more brownie points in the universe for doing the thing that makes you happy because it's a good deed. Uh, and I said to Madison, that's ridiculous, I said. It doesn't make any difference why you do a good deed. It just matters if you do a good deed. So if someone's cold and you give them a blanket and you feel self-congratulatory for giving them a blanket, who cares? Uh, it, it, the, the fact is someone is cold, they have a blanket, now they're not cold. That's that to me is the takeaway. I actually consulted my nun about this. I have my own nun, uh, Sister Nina, and there is a piece about her in the book. And so we had lunch the next day and I said, so this guy wrote me and he said, you know, is a good deed still a good deed? She was appalled. It was the most horrifying thing she had ever heard in her life. She said, it makes no difference at all. You just have to go out there and do a good deed. 
So this is a story about my altruism. And it goes back to my sister, Heather, and in 2003, Heather got a job as the vice president of Converse College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And on her first day of the job, she was walking across campus and she was spotted by a girl named Nikki Castle. And Nikki Castle was the sophomore class president at Converse College. And Nikki turned around to her friend and she said, who's that woman? And they said, that's Heather Patchett. She is the new vice president. And Nikki said, well then, she needs to meet me and walked over, hi, I'm Nikki Castle, and that's the kind of person Nikki Castle is. And my sister, seeing Nikki's tremendous ability, immediately hired her to babysit her two children. <laughs> Which was a very good move, because my sister's children were wolverines, and probably, any peace and equanimity they have at this point in their life comes from the years that they spent with Nikki. When Nikki graduated from Converse, just from a small town in South Carolina, she had not been on a plane, you know, uh, but a really bright, and in every way, intellectually bright, but also bright, like a bright light, bright girl. And I, I wished for her the chance to look around. It's not that I wished for her a different life than the one she might have had if I left her alone. I just wanted her to look around before she made her decision about staying in South Carolina forever. So I sent her to the Columbia Publishing Program in New York, and when she got her letter of acceptance, she, then she got into the program, she went up to New York, and she called me and she said, you know, it's so interesting. Every year they let in exactly 100 students, and this year they let in 101. Um, and, and Nikki's the kind of girl who didn't care about something like that. When she got out of the program, I got her a job with my management agency, International Creative Management in New York. And she worked in New York for four years. And it was good. And she came home, she would visit us in Nashville, she would visit my sister in South Carolina. I would always see Nikki whenever I was in New York because she you know, worked for my agent, so that wasn't so hard. And, and it was good, she liked it, she wanted to be an agent. But time goes on, and she's kind of less and less happy. And when we talk on the phone, she is more and more likely to cry. And then she is crying quite a bit. And she's crying quite a bit because it's hard to be 25 and live in New York and be from South Carolina and be cheerful and be the person who is always, hi, I'm Nikki Castle, because the world doesn't give that back to you. And she's broke and she's having to babysit three nights a week and she's still not making ends meet, you know, you know, right? Life, New York in the 20s, it's hard. And she said, I don't want to do this anymore. This is not what I want for my life. And I want to come home. And um, when she said she wanted to come home, what she meant was she wanted to come home and live with me. <laughs> and I don't have kids. And one of the reasons, and there were a lot of reasons that I didn't want to have kids, was I didn't want to have that point when they got to be in their 20s and then they wanted to come home. <laughs> So I started saying things like, Atlanta is booming. Charlotte has a great airport. You know, didn't a lot of your friends go to Charlotte after college? You, you don't want to come to Nashville. I'm the only person you know in Nashville except my mother. And uh, she said, no, Nashville. I want to come to Nashville. And she's crying. And this conversation goes on. And... Nikki and I are very close. And we're also a lot alike. And we're very direct, and more bossy. And she was gonna come to Nashville, and that was kind of it. She was gonna come to Nashville with a lot of debt and with no idea what she was going to be, because she can't be an, a literary agent in Nashville, and no place to live, and she was gonna live with us. So she moved to Nashville and she moved into our basement, which is a nice place, our basement. A lot of people have moved into our basement. <laughs> In fact, the last time I was here, oh God, the last time I was here at this very arts and lecture series, I met a young woman in her 20s from Portland for three minutes at a cocktail reception who six months later moved into my basement. <laughs> for six months, for six months. N uh, Nell stayed for six months. Nikki actually found an apartment after about a week. 
but I had told her that she could work for me until she found a job. So I've never had an assistant before. I have a lot of writer friends who have assistants, and they all tell me it's a really good idea. So I said, well, you know, we'll try it out. This is obviously, this isn't forever. It's just until you find a job. And Nikki came and she worked for me. And after about a day and a half, she had reorganized the wrapping paper and the receipts. And she set me up for auto bill pay, which is something I never would have been smart enough to figure out. And, and then she ran out of stuff to do. And I started teaching her how to cook. And then I started taking her to the gym, showing her how to work out. And it became very clear that I was going to be Nikki's assistant. <laughs> um, but then she went back and she was working on another closet in my office and she found my Tupperware bin. I have a Tupperware bin about that size. For those of you listening on radio, two feet, foot high, foot and a half deep, something like that. Uh, and it's full of all of the magazine articles and essays I've written in my life. Because I always traveled a lot, I moved a lot, and magazines are very heavy, and I wrote really stupid stuff for magazines. So what I would do is every time I published a piece in a magazine, I would rip the pages out with my article, I would also rip off the cover, and I would throw them in the Tupperware bin, put the lid back on. So Nikki found this bin, and she says, this is totally unacceptable because she is 26 at this point. And she says, they must be digitalized. Uh, so I buy her a scanner, which is like 80 bucks. Who knew? Uh, I still don't know how to use it. And she began to scan everything. She bought archival sleeves. She made a little organizational system, big binders. And while she was doing this, I was thrilled, something for her to do she began to read them. And while she was reading them, she decided that what she was going to do while she was my assistant was she was going to put together a book of essays and I was going to publish a book of essays. Now, let me backtrack just a second. When I got out of graduate school, I got a job teaching at a little college in Pennsylvania called Allegheny. And uh, I worked for a year as a you know college professor. And then I got a job at a TGI Fridays. <laughs> which was, uh, you know, as you might imagine, a complicated story. But I wanted to be a fiction writer from the time I was a child. And I was very serious about my fiction. I published fiction in college, in graduate school. I was on the right track. I was, I was going to write books. And that was always literary and true and important and something that I would never sell out or mess with. But I had to make a living because that wasn't going to pay the rent. And I am, if nothing else, the most freakishly practical person you have ever seen chatting you up on a stage. So, um, so I had to get a job and, and I had two skills. I could teach college because when I was a graduate school, my teaching assistantship had been what I got to pay the bills. So I had had two years of teaching experience as a graduate student, and I knew I could do that. The other thing that I knew I could do was food service. So teaching, teaching was good. Um, it, it made me smart, it left me a lot of energy, but for those of you, and this is the problem of being in a dark theater because I know that there are gonna be people out there doing this. For those of you who have taught before, it doesn't matter if you teach one class or eight classes. Teaching is a sponge that expands to fill up exactly how much space you have in your life. It's also a pyramid scheme. Be yay, yes. Uh, in that you have, say you have 50 students in a year and then they go on the next year, but the next year you get 50 more students and the 50 students from last year, they still love you very much. They still really want to talk and cuddle and you know, anyway. <laughs> so while I would finish work at the end of the day and I'd have plenty of energy, I didn't have any space in my head to write fiction. And so I thought it would maybe be a better idea to put the burden of paying the rent on my back instead of on my brain. And so I became a waitress. 
Um, I also had a little catastrophic early divorce in there that hastened this process along. But enough about that. Um, so I became a waitress at Friday's, and that was really good because I made up novels in my head, uh, and I could I could just think all day long, give me eight orders, tell me that you want shrimp fajitas, I can, I can file that away and still be working on plot development at the same time. At the end of the shift, you had to roll 150 packets of silverware. So I would think, okay, so this character's in Kentucky and she gets there in her car and her mother has died, you know, this is how it's going. Uh, you also have to marry the ketchup I always like to say this, just in case you don't know, that the bottom 95% of ketchup in every ketchup bottle in every restaurant in America has been there since 1979. <laughs> and someone like me is holding one bottle on top of another and hitting it and making up a novel. Anyway, and that was all really good. I was making up novels, I was making up novels, but at the end of the day, I was way too tired to write because I was exhausted, so I could never take what was out of my head and type it up. So I thought there's got to be a third option. And the third option I decided was writing nonfiction for magazines. Now, as we have already established, I was a serious literary fiction writer. I could really care less what I was writing for nonfiction. I wanted to make the maximum amount of money in the minimum amount of time, and I had no standards whatsoever. <laughs> It never made any sense to me that a person would want to spend a month writing a piece for the nation on global warming and getting $500 when you could spend 45 minutes writing a piece about pressed powder versus loose powder for glamour and make $2,000. Because I wasn't interested in being a nonfiction writer. I got my start at 17. I had published a couple of short stories there, so I had an in, and I begged them to let me start writing nonfiction because as a fiction writer, I knew max I could only publish one short story a year in the magazine, but I knew that their nonfiction writers could publish every month. The first piece they gave me after a lot of badgering was a 200-word book review. 200-word book review is about the size of four postage stamps lined up of a first novel called The Joy Luck Club by a young woman named Amy Tan. I gave it a very good review. Um, I then went on to pitch a lot of articles to Seventeen. Everything that I would pitch, for every 10 pieces I came up with, they would take one piece. Every single person on the staff would put notes on it that said things like, well, I didn't feel that way about my little sister when I was 14. Okay. What that experience did, and I did that for eight years, was it beat any trace of ego or sentimentality out of me. All I wanted was the job. So if you told me that the piece was due tomorrow, you were gonna get it tomorrow. You needed a thousand words longer, done. You needed 500 words shorter, done. I went on to write such American classics as When the Chemistry Isn't There, When Your Best Friend's a Guy, How to Decorate Your Locker, <laughs> When Your Little Sister Reads Your Diary, Issues of Privacy, I Was a Hard-Boiled Journalist, if I was writing a piece about teenage drinking, I would just say Polly, 14, not her real name, and then I'd just like write the little Polly story. <laughs> I didn't even know you weren't supposed to do that, you know? I never knew that you were like supposed to go out and talk to teenagers. I just made it all up. <laughs> um, then my college friends, you know, were getting jobs, and my friend Erica got a job as an editor at Bridal Guide, and Erica wasn't so interested in hiring new writers, it was a lot of trouble, so she just let me write the entire magazine every month. <laughs> I had six pin names, and I could, I, and I'm not a great typist, I never took typing, I, I have to look. But I could literally write the piece in the time it took me to type it. Uh, you know, how to get bridesmaids dresses that match your napkins, how to get cake toppers that look like you and your husband. I don't care. I'm a novelist. Uh, and I'm publishing novels and things are going better, but nowhere near being able to make a living. Now, what changed is not that I got better or that my aspirations grew or that I desired to write better nonfiction. It's that my editors grew up and they got better jobs and they pulled me along with them. Um, 
I had, or you know, you have a friend and your friend's writing for something. I had my friend Lucy wrote a piece for Vogue, and so I ended up writing for Vogue. And it was really interesting, actually. My editor at Vogue was a woman named Elena Silverman. And Elena then went to GQ. I started writing for GQ, and then Elena went to the New York Times Magazine. I started writing for the New York Times Magazine. My friend Liz Gilbert, we didn't know each other in those days. We were both writing with Elena and taking the exact same road, although Liz, I think, was always a much more noble nonfiction writer. So, you know, all of a sudden, I'm writing for the New York Times, I'm writing for Harper's, I'm writing for The Atlantic, not because I aspired to do better, but because my editors aspired to do better. And they kept getting other jobs and moving and moving. So. Picture now, back to this Tupperware bin, which has the permafrost layer of 17 and Bridal Guide on the bottom. The great thing about Bridal Guide is that unless you're a total freak, the whole readership turns over every two years. <laughs> so you actually resell those articles in perpetuity. I, I swear, I bet you if we went to Walgreens right now and picked up a copy of Bridal Guide, there would be something in there that I had written. So, and then, you know, it kind of goes up and it's the Washington Post magazine and Harper's and, you know, Gourmet and better and better. So this is what Nikki is scanning and this is what Nikki is reading. And this is how Nikki decides that I'm going to write a book of essays. And she goes into my computer files, um, because she can go anywhere in my life, and she finds the original pieces, she prints them out, she organizes them, she, she decides what order they're gonna be in, and she hands me a book and says, this is your book. Pretty cool, huh? Um, and at this point, I learned two things about myself. One of those things I, I already knew, but not necessarily for nonfiction, which is I can't read my own writing. I've never read any of my books. Now, now, in all fairness, what that means is that when you're writing a book, you read it over and over and over again. And you give it to a friend and your friend gives you notes and you read it again and you put in your friend's notes and then you do that with your editor and the copy editor and the page proofs and looking for typos and the final pass. And by the time the book is published and by the time it's gotten to a point where I can't make any changes on it, it is completely dead to me. <laughs> um, so... It turns out this is true with nonfiction as well. And I open the book and I, ah, I can't read it. I can't read it. All these articles and essays that I read 30 times while I was working on them, I can't read them again. But I also make another discovery. And that is, and this is when, well, I should hang on, hang on to the second discovery for a second. Nikki gets a job. And Nikki gets a job at the Nashville Public Library Foundation. Coincidentally, I am on the board there. <clears throat> um, but Nikki is a border collie, so even though she's not in my house every day, she's still going for my heel. Do you read the book? Do you read the book? Do you read the book? Come on, come on, come on, come on. And she's saying things like, you know, I used to work at ICM. I have a copy of this book. I can send it in without you. Like, do you want to participate or do you want to be left by the side of the road? So finally, after a lot of badgering, I do read the book, and it's painful in that Madame Defarge, you know, knits a Tupperware box full of scarves kind of way, because I realize how my psychology has been working all these years, which is, I have an experience, good, bad, dull, thrilling, whatever, and I write it down, and I publish it, and I get the magazine, and I rip it out, and I put it in the bin. And that's my life. That's my psychology. And honestly, for those of you who aren't writers, I don't know how you're doing it. In all seriousness, I don't know how you carry the burden of life with you. Because I took care of my grandmother for 10 years, and went to see her every day and gave her baths and clipped her toenails and did her hair and stuff you couldn't even imagine. And when she died, I wrote it down and I put it in Harper's and I put it in the bin. 
And when my dog died, I wrote it down and I put it in vogue and I put it in the bin. And when my boyfriend and I broke up and then decided to take a Winnebago together across America and later got married, I wrote it down and I put it in the bin. And that was where my life was. And it was really hard to take a look at again. And I knew that this was a book that I couldn't publish because even though all of these pieces were personal, and I should say here, not all of the pieces were personal. It was just that all the good pieces were personal. I mean, I had done reporting, I'd done journalism, and it wasn't interesting. The pieces that were really good, even I knew, and certainly Nikki knew, were the pieces that were really close to home. So it's kind of like, why can't I put them together when they've all been published before? If you go to a party and you're wearing a dress that covers your knees and has a high neck and has no sleeves and someone takes your picture, that's fine. And the next week you go to another party and you're wearing a dress with long sleeves and a high neck but it's kind of short and somebody takes your picture, that's fine. Next week you go to another party and you're wearing a long dress with long sleeves but it's kind of low. Somebody takes your picture. And then somebody puts all these pictures together, and you're naked. Um, and I felt really uncomfortable about that. So I said to Nikki, no book, no book, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, but two-thirds of the essays in this book are terrible. And I start thinking about essay books and how essay books are so often disappointing. And the reason essay books are so often disappointing is because people have two or three or four amazing essays, unbelievably great essays, and then there's just a lot of junk, letters to the editor, book reviews, filler, fluff. And so you start to read a book and it's so good and you love it so much and then it breaks your heart because it tapers off into nothing. So I took all of the essays out that I thought were bad and I had about 100 pages of what I thought was good. And the assignments keep coming in as they always do because even though I am at this point a successful novelist and I have plenty of money, I actually really love writing nonfiction because a novel can take me two or three years to work on and my friends think I'm dead. Uh, but if I get an assignment to write a nonfiction piece, it takes me two days or two weeks and then I have the satisfaction of publishing it and it's kind of like my shout out to the world. It takes me out of myself. So I'm still writing nonfiction. And now, even though I have said to Nikki, there's gonna be no book, absolutely no book, every time I get a nonfiction assignment, I start to think, well, if hypothetically there was a book, what would I want to say now? What would I want to write about? Well, I would definitely want to have a piece about my nun, right? Because that's the most amazing story in the world. And um, I'd want to have a piece about when I was 30 and I tried out for the Los Angeles Police Department. That was good because I jump, I know how to jump over a six foot wall. And even as I say that, I'm looking back and I'm thinking, I'm 5'7", I could jump that. Um, that would be a good piece. And, and so when people start saying, you know, will you write this, will you write that? I begin to write these pieces that fit into this essay book that I'm not going to publish. And I become very interested in the idea of a book that has a narrative arc, a book that would really function as a novel, a book that would have a theme. And the theme would be about commitment, the things that I felt deeply wedded to. Now, about this time, in which I am not doing an essay book, I get two huge assignments. Uh, most of the essays that I write are 1,500 words, 3,000 words, usually around in that range. So I get an assignment for a 15,000 word piece, about 50 pages, from Byliner, and they said, you know, write anything you want to know. And I wrote a piece that absolutely was the smartest thing I ever did in my life. I wrote a piece called The Getaway Car, and it was all the writing advice I had in the world. Because everywhere I go, somebody says, how do you get inspiration? How do you get started? Should I get an MFA? How do I get an agent? How do you get a book published? What part is creativity? Does the muse take over and write the book for you? It's fine. And what happens is people call all the time and they say, it's not I want to be a writer, it's always my daughter wants to be a writer, my cousin wants to be a writer, 
my husband's patients come to him and they say, you know, my 12-year-old daughter either wants to be a gymnast or a novelist. So would Anne be willing to have lunch with her once a week until she graduates from high school just to talk over all the possibilities of writing? So by writing this one clearinghouse of all the information I have, now when someone says, you know, can you tell me this about writing? Will you have lunch with me? I always say, yes, absolutely. All you have to do is read this 50-page essay. And if you read this essay and at the end you have any questions, I will have lunch with you. And so far, no one has ever come back. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that means the essay's good or the essay's bad, but it has really opened up my afternoons considerably. Um, the other piece, the assignment came in about the same time. They said, we want something that's about 50 pages. And I said, sure, and I had no idea what to write about. So of course I went to Nikki, and I said, what should I do? And Nikki says, I think you should write a piece about your marriage. She said, you and Carl are really the only happily married people I know. My parents are divorced, my friends' parents are all divorced, we're all in our 20s, we're internet dating, we're miserable, you know, wh what does it mean to be in a good marriage and to have a good relationship? So I thought, that, oh, that's a really good idea, I'll do that, and then I decided to write this as the story of a happy marriage, because Nikki kept saying, tell me the story of your happy marriage. Everyone in my family, for as far as the eye can see in any direction, has been divorced. And when I sat down to write about marriage, it was really fascinating to realize that everything that I know about marriage comes from divorce, and that divorce is the bedrock of my marriage. Um, <laughs> So I wrote that essay. So now I have three really long pieces. I've got the piece about the LAPD, I've got the piece, the getaway car about writing, and I've got the happy marriage piece. And I begin at this point to see the, um, I see the essay book as a shopping mall. And you've got your anchor stores and your boutique stores. So now I've got my Macy's and my Nordstrom and my Bloomingdale's. And and I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is now a book I'm really proud of. Because one of my biggest criteria in life is to never publish a book that I feel isn't as good as everything else that I've done. I want every book that I publish to be better than anything I've done before. And at this point, it feels better. But it still feels too personal to put these quarter naked pictures next to each other. Because no matter how big of an Ann Patchett fan you are, you have not read all this stuff in all the weird different places I've published. But then something happened that changed my life, that changed all of this, and that is I opened a bookstore. Two years ago, this week, Parnassus Books in Nashville, Tennessee, Karen Hayes and I opened the bookstore. Yes, thank you. Um, and when that happened, Everything in my life changed. I went from being an inside person, which means that I was someone who was very protective of my time and my quiet, the cone of silence, my privacy, so that I could write fiction and disappear in that world. When I opened the bookstore, that was smashed and I became an outside person. And I became somebody who will come and speak at your Rotary Club. I become somebody who everybody wants to talk to in the grocery store. Basically, in Nashville, the three people you most want to see in Whole Foods, me, Nicole Kidman, Connie Britton. Uh, <laughs> and I'm fine with it because all my life, well, you know, since I've been publishing fiction, all that life, people come up to me in the grocery store and they say, I love Truth and Beauty, I love Belcanto, and I went to Catholic school for 12 years. And the two things that I've got down cold, you know, are modesty and humility. And I don't know what to do with that. I mean, after all this time, I don't really know. I'm like, ah, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, but it's not a comfortable place for me. But when somebody comes up to me and says, thank you for opening the bookstore, I love this bookstore, I take my family to your bookstore, I say thank you so much, don't you love the bookstore, isn't it the best place, when are you coming back, I want to be there, I want to talk to you. And I become a famous bookseller. 
When we opened the store on November 15th, 2011, there was a picture of me on the front page of the New York Times because I opened an independent bookstore between a donut den and a nail emporium. Because it seemed like such a crazy, brave, bold, and daring thing to do. And you know, I thought I was being altruistic. I felt sorry for my city because we had two 30,000 square foot bookstores that were profitable every month they were in business. We had a Borders and we had a Davis Kid, which had once long ago been our locally owned independent and been bought by a small chain and they moved it into the mall and they put coffee cups and hand lotion and wind chimes in front of every single book in the store. And when those two profitable stores were closed within six months of each other at a corporate level, I waited for someone to step forward and open a bookstore as surely they would. Let me tell you a story. When I was 19 years old, I went to Harvard Summer School and I lived in a suite with three other girls. Harvard is a venerable institution, but they have a real cockroach problem. <laughs> it was so bad. And one night at about 11 o'clock, I got out of bed and I stepped on a bug that was the size of that water glass. <laughs> and it, it ran away. And we were, I screamed, the other three girls got up, we screamed, it was running around the room, I am not making this up. We corral it into the bathroom, we shut the door, we roll up a towel, we stuff it under the door, and we scream. And I say, I'm gonna go get security. <laughs> so, 11 o'clock at night, I go out into Harvard and I find a very elderly security guard. And he comes back to the room. And we're all kind of crying and screaming and you know, doing the little bunny hop thing. And uh, the guy takes the towel away and he goes in the bathroom and he looks in the shower and he looks at us and he says, ladies, you are on your own. <laughs> and he left. And I looked at the three girls standing behind me and I thought, oh my God. This is my job. I have to kill it. And I did. And you know, the nuns always told us that if you can formulate the thought, well, whose job is this? <laughs> if you see trash on the street and you think, well, whose job is this? Then the answer before you get to the end of the sentence is, it's your job. You pick it up. You kill the bug, you open the bookstore. <laughs> so, now, it wasn't hard because I had the most amazing partner in the world, a total stranger I was introduced to as the other person in Nashville who wanted to open a bookstore and wanted to work there and make it her life's work. She just didn't have any money. I had a lot of money. And I said, let's get together. I will pay for it. I'll promote it. I will put a lot of shine on it. I will, like the mafia, force every famous writer in this country to come down because I've got something on everybody. Uh, and we'll, we'll do this show upright, and we have, and it's been a huge, booming success. But when I went into this, I thought I was doing a kindness for my city because I love my city and I didn't want to live in a city without a bookstore. And it was like the symphony is going under. I guess, you know, you have to step up and help the symphony or whatever it is. It's, you've got to be altruistic. You've got to do what you've got to do. And I never thought about all of the amazing things that would come into my life because of my altruism. Number one, I get to see all my friends now because my friends are writers and they all write books and they go on book tour. In the 10 days before I started book tour, we had at Parnassus Books, Donna Tartt, Garrison Keillor, Pat Conroy, who I interviewed on stage, Elizabeth Gilbert, Wally Lamb. Amy Tan was there last night, Nikki Giovanni next week. Astonishing. 
and I mean other than Portland, Seattle, Boston, New York, DC, there's nobody who's doing this. That is amazing, the show of support and love from all over. People I've always wanted to meet are now coming to Nashville, so that's great. The other great thing is that I have created this space where my friends now work, I, because I actually forgot to tell you, who is our director of events and marketing? <laughs> Nikki Castle, what did Nikki want? She wanted a bookstore, so... Um, you know, I go into the store and I see three members of the staff in the back and they're arguing heatedly about something. What's wrong, guys? What's going on? Which, is, which, which Evelyn Waugh novel is their favorite? <laughs> but the best thing, and the reason you should all go out and open a bookstore, the very best thing about owning your own bookstore is that you can force people to read the books you love. Now, we are all readers, that's why we're here tonight, and so every one of you knows the experience of reading a book and loving it madly, passionately, and how that experience is not complete until you can push it on someone else. <laughs> I have been doing that my whole life since I learned to read. I've been doing that with my friends and my family. And now I have this ever evolving, changing stream of human life coming through a store and I can make people read the books that I love. It's not about sales. I mean, I'm not thinking, wow, I might get like four cents off of this if I make this person read the book. It's that I love books more than anything. And I so desperately want you to have that experience. When I was in college, I was changing planes in O'Hare and I met a Hare Krishna and I spent two hours with the Hare Krishna. I don't even think they have Hare Krishnas in O'Hare anymore. And um, God, he was so kind and he looked like John Denver. He was wearing khakis and a pink shirt and he had the little straight yellow hair and the glasses. And you know, obviously they picked the Hare Krishna who looked most like a guy in O'Hare. And, and he, he said to me when we were talking, he said, what if you loved God so much, so much, and all you wanted to do was tell people how much you loved God? You didn't want anything from them, you just wanted to share the joy of your life. That's how I feel about books. And that's what I get to do. And let me tell you, because I've wanted to tell you this ever since I walked out on this stage. <laughs> that I was right, that I was right about everything. Jim McBride won the National Book Award for the Good Lord Bird, and I said all along it would be Jim McBride. <laughs> and we have these things in our store called shelf talkers where the staff writes out their recommended books and we stick them under the book. And my shelf talker for Jim McBride's The Good Lord Bird says, buy it now, read it now, and feel incredibly smug when it wins all the big prizes. <laughs> And you can say, oh, the good Lord Bird, I read that months ago. That's what my shelf talker for that book says. <laughs> and when he came to Nashville in October, before the shortlist had even been announced, I got to stand up and say, this is the book that's gonna win everything. It is like grabbing onto a live wire when you're reading. I read like a teenage girl walking from room to room. I read it eating my cereal. It's so good. As is Karen Joy Fowler's We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves and Anthony Mara's Constellation of Vital Phenomenon. Honestly, it is like religion. I feel like Amy Simple McPherson when I get into this. <laughs> Donna Tartt, The Goldfinch, that one you already know. Elizabeth Gilbert, Signature of All Things. It has been a phenomenal year for books. Now, when I was out on book tour with State of Wonder, I, uh, I took a book out with me. 
And this was a, a book that was out of print, a little tiny novel, 130 pages, and I wrote a new introduction for it and talked my publisher, HarperCollins, into reissuing it. It's called The All of It by Jeanette Hayne. And every night I was out on book tour for State of Wonder, I flogged the hell out of this book. And it actually made it onto paperback book selling lists all across the country because I wanted to test my chops as a bookseller. And let me tell you, <laughs> This is still the number one best-selling title at Parnassus. And we keep a stack of it by the cash register, and when you check out, we say, have you read the all of it? And if somebody says, no, I haven't, we're like... <laughs> you read it in one sitting, it is emotionally and morally and technically complex. And if you are in a book club and it is December and you don't feel like reading Anna Karenina because it's too long, <laughs> but you still want to feel smart and engaged and have a good conversation, the all of it. It is four words, not all of it like a typewriter. Okay, I'm doing it again this time. While I'm out with my book of essays, I present to you A Day at the Beach by Jeffrey Wolf, a book that is much better than mine, and it's in paperback. This is the best book of essays I've ever read. Uh, Jeffrey Wolf is Tobias Wolf's brother. When their parents divorced, the father got Jeffrey, the mother got Toby. Toby wrote This Boy's Life. Jeffrey wrote the classic Duke of Deception. Most people who write are not very interesting people because they are inside people. When they write about something interesting, usually they've been set out on assignment and someone has paid them to be interesting. Jeffrey actually is an interesting person <laughs> who has had an amazingly interesting life. Uh, most people who have ridden motorcycles through Egypt and smoked a lot of hash and tried to climb mountains and single-handed boats and had their chests cracked open are much too busy living life to sit down and write about it, or they don't have that kind of a mind. Jeffrey really is one of the only people who is both unbelievably interesting and a truly, truly brilliant writer. So, those are my sales pitches. Um, I would also like to say that the book that I am here with tonight, this is the story of a happy marriage, never, never would have existed without Nikki. And without this huge journey of opening a bookstore, finding out that yes, from the good deeds that we do, we get an enormous amount of payback, whether we expect it, and you never know what form it's coming in. The thing that's come out of my being an independent bookstore owner is that I have become the spokesperson for independent bookstores. I didn't know that that was a job that was available and I didn't know that I was applying for it, but I got it. So let me just give you my message. Um, you know this because you live in Portland and you have the mothership. But I'm going to say it anyway, because honestly, I do not believe people are bad, but I believe people forget. And I believe that sometimes people are lazy. And a woman came up to me in Denver one day and she said, I own a small gardening shop and people come in and they say, what do I plant in the shade and what do I plant in the sun and what fertilizer do I use and when do I plant and what insecticide? And after taking up an hour of the time of someone who works for me, goes to Lowe's and buys those products. I used to think, growing up in the South, I used to think that Walmart killed small towns. And wait, don't clap. That's not going where you think it's going. Um, I thought that Walmart was this terrible thing. Killed these businesses, put people out of work, small business owners. Walmart didn't do anything. Walmart didn't do anything wrong. We did it because we wanted to pay 30 cents less for a bag of cotton balls from the superstore than from our neighbor who had had the pharmacy that we had been going to all along. It's not that I think big business shouldn't exist, it's that every single day we have to make the decision. We drive the ship by where we spend our money and the lowest price is not 
always going to be the best value. So that if you want a place where you can bring your children to go to story hour and you can meet visiting authors and you can go to a jazz workshop and you can bring your whole family together and hang out someplace because you can't all hang out at anthropology before dinner, then you need to go and support the things you care about. We are the ones that keep things going and alive. And it's so empowering. It's so exciting to know that these decisions are in our hands, that we're not being victimized. I don't have any problem with Amazon existing, but you may not ever come into my store and talk to my smart staff and read the flap copy and look at the covers and go to story hour with your kids and then go home and spend five bucks less on Amazon. But you know that. So I don't know why it's my job to remind you, but it is. Um, <laughs> Portland, you are a beautiful city that supports all things independent and truly, truly you are the role model for the country. I have so much respect for you. I am so grateful to have been invited into your beautiful lecture hall, and good night. That was Ann Patchett, who spoke at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in downtown Portland as part of Portland Arts and Lectures on November 20th, 2013. Ann Patchett returns to Portland to celebrate her new novel, Tom Lake, on September 7th, 2023. She'll be in conversation with Cheryl Strayed. More info at literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Matthew Workman for Radio and Podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to Literary Arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thank you also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>